Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 231. We'll begin the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about the interesting goings-on outside the canon. Divrei Hayamim is translated as Chronicles in English, which means a written account, but it could be literally rendered as the stuff of days, which is closer to the original Greek word chronika, which comes from the Greek word chronos, which means time. And it's one of the few terms we have in Hebrew for what we would call history. Chronicles rounds out the Tanakh. According to scholars, it was most likely composed sometime in the late decades, the 5th century BCE, after the return to Zion, and after the mission of Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of that century to renew the temple and reestablish the canonical authority of the Torah. As with Samuel and Kings, the division of Chronicles into two books is the product of anonymous editorial forces. That is, it appears in this way in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Tanakh from the 3rd to 2nd century BCE. And it stuck. Considering the chronicler's obsession, specifically genealogies and the pure family lines of Levites and Kohanim, as well as the finer points of temple ritual, some have argued that it was probably written by a priest or at the very least, someone close to priestly circles. Chronicles is a recap of the Tanakh, and it gets right into it from verse 1 of chapter 1 with its first word, Adam, followed by a sprawling genealogy, which takes us through much of the book of Genesis. One can easily identify the source material from Genesis chapters 5, 10, 11, and 36, comparing list to list, but you can see where the chronicler has taken some shortcuts and liberties. For example, here in chapter 1, Keturah is identified as Avraham's concubine, where Genesis says she's Avraham's wife. We get not only a list of names, but a geopolitical map of the Fertile Crescent and the Mediterranean. In verses 5 through 23, we not only get the names of Noah's sons and grandsons, but mentions of countries like Madai, which is Persia, or Yavan, which is Greece, Kush, Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, and Canaan. And in some cases, we even get a little commentary, like after mention of Nimrod, the text tells us, quote, he was the first mighty man on earth or later in chapter 2 when the text identifies the son of Carmi, the one who, quote, stirred up trouble against Israel when he betrayed the ban. This incident was described at length in Joshua chapter 7, but what's interesting is that here his name was changed from Achan to Achar because then the name becomes the root of the word Ocher, as in Ocher Yisrael, a common epithet for someone who creates problems for the Jews. And since all we have here are names, here's a notable absence, Yaakov, grandson of Avraham and son of Yitzchak. Instead, the text consistently uses Yisrael. Chapter 2 lists all the sons of Yisrael according to the order of their birth, and by the time we start chapter 3, we are skipping ahead to listing the sons of David, which highlights the second focus of this text, the kings of Judah. But for that Rockham Sockham narrative, We'll have to be patient, because it only begins in chapter 10. I haven't had this many names to work through. 
since Genesis chapters 4 and 5, but there, thankfully, the original lists had some color commentary about the figures in question. Here, it's pretty dry and unreadable, and there's a lot more where that came from. Six chapters more, to be precise, so buckle up. We have two more episodes of this before it gets interesting. We tend to think that parshanut, or commentary, is an extra-canonical process. That is, writers outside of the biblical context, be it geographically or chronologically, take pen to paper and offer their take and interpretation on texts within the Tanakh canon. Think of Rashi sitting in his study in Troyes, France in the 11th century CE, or Judith Plaschkow sitting in her office at Manhattan College in the 20th century. However, Professor Yair Zakovich observed in a 1992 essay that one can also see Parshanut at work within the canon here in Chronicles. And I'm going to use the term Midrash and Parshanut interchangeably because in my mind they are, but some would argue that they're on a continuum with Midrashim that exist to address problems within the source text, you know, straight up exegesis on one end of that spectrum, with Midrashim that are totally removed from the plain sense of the text and don't resolve any problems in the sources way on the other end. One major project of the Chronicler is simplification, so that the present-day reader will have an easier time understanding the text, like I said, straightforward exegesis. I could bring examples here, but they're obviously from later chapters because this episode's portion is as textually engaging as a piece of soggy white toast. But again, we lose the fine-grained work of the chronicler because the English translator has to come along and they, you know, sand down some of the problematic phrases in the original spot. So, all right, fine. One example. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 13, quote, And three of the thirty at the head went down in the harvest to David at the cave of Adullam, with the Philistine force camped in the valley of Rephaim. So, what's the problem here? It's the phrase Philistine force. In the Hebrew, chayat plishtim is a weird phrase that only appears in this chapter of the Tanakh. What's chayat referring to? Well, the chronicler just clears it up by using the word machane, which translators here in Chronicles, as they did in Samuel, render as force. The Chronicler also does some editing and editorializing. For example, at the end of 2 Samuel, there is this account of the plague that breaks out in the kingdom of David because he dared to conduct a census of the people. And David, as a seeming act of penance, goes out and buys Aravna's threshing floor on the top of Mount Moriah so he can build an altar. This story breaks up the flow of the narrative of the passing of the crown from David to Shlomo. The Chronicler recounts this story, but adds supernatural details, the most telling coming at the end when a fire comes down from heaven to ignite David's sacrifice on the newly built altar, showing that God is happy with this sight and this act, setting the stage for his son Shlomo building a lavish temple on the same spot. And one more example, the Chronicler shines a light on individuals that are relegated to the role of NPC in the original. This is a common motif in Midrash, by the way. So the Book of Kings mentions the prophet Yehu ben Hanani, who was active in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Basa. 
The Chronicler recasts him as the official historian of King Yehoshaphat, and his father Hanani gets some clout as well. He is identified as a prophet in his own right who castigates King Asa, Yehoshaphat's father. Now, why is this significant? Well, it presupposes what a later Midrash and Leviticus Rabbah establishes, that the father of a prophet who is named and known is also a prophet. Which brings me to consider not only the purpose of this Stuff of Days project, but also that of commentary slash parshanut slash midrash on the Tanakh. Are many of these works not simply works of fan fiction? And I say this not to dismiss, disrespect, or deride chronicles, midrash, parshanut, or fan fiction. Fan fiction is often dismissed for a lot of reasons. A lot of it is poorly written as it is mostly written by a bunch of fucking amateurs. But for some serious readers, it's often disregarded because it is unauthorized. That is, the work of fan fiction is based on, say, the Harry Potter universe, but J.K. Rowling hasn't given the work her blessing. It's gone rogue, and for Rowling's purposes, it infringes on her copyright. Now, I don't want to get into the whole foo-farah around copyright and intellectual property and fair use doctrine, but it does raise interesting questions about what's considered canon and what lies outside of it and who gets to produce each and pass judgment about it. And it does also highlight how these two categories aren't absolute, as there are works that float somewhere in between. Here's just a couple of examples. And we're back in the Harry Potter universe for, for this one. The, the stage play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is arguably fan fiction. It's set 19 years after the events of the last Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It's arguably fan fiction as it was not written by J.K. Rowling, but by Jack Thorne, although it was based on an original story by J.K. Rowling. And of course, it's all authorized, etc., etc., and Rowling will get her cut of the profits. And of course, there's headcanon, which generally refers to ideas held by fans of series that are not explicitly supported by sanctioned texts or other media. Fans maintain the ideas in their head outside of the accepted canon, but arguably could be found within the canon. So, for example, there's a lot of headcanons about muggle-born students at Hogwarts, that is, wizardy teens who have non-wizard parents. It's obvious that they would have much more knowledge about pop culture, technology, and all the latest trends in both. This raises some interesting storytelling possibilities, many of which are pursued in works outside the canon, that is, fan fiction. I think, however, that a lot of the disrespect and dismissiveness comes from the age of the work in question. If it's too current, too new, and hasn't weathered the test of time, it's probably dreck and not worth reading. But John Milton's Paradise Lost is also fan fiction. Dante's Inferno also fits the bill, except when he inserts himself into the story and has Virgil, the Roman poet, serve as his guide. He brings in the Aeneid, which also brings in Greek mythology into the mix. James Joyce's Ulysses is fan fiction of the Odyssey, just set in Dublin. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet leaned on the poem The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, and Othello similarly borrowed from an Italian tale called The Moorish Captain. Bridget Jones's Diary is alternative universe fan fiction of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. That is, Helen Fielding wrote 
Bridget Jones as a wish fulfillment exercise. She wanted to see more of Darcy and Elizabeth getting together. Clueless is another alternative universe take on another Austin novel, Emma, porting Emma's small, insular, gossiping village into a 90s high school. I I could go on. One could have imagined a similar metric applied to the apocryphal works from the period of the Tanakh. How about that fable about the Jews of Persia surviving a genocidal plot? Well, that's been around for a while, and it's a rollicking tale with an upstanding moral message. Include it. And that highly charged erotic poem about a love between a man and a woman, supposedly written by King Shlomo? I'm Mitt Romney, and I approve this message. And what about the multiple accounts of the Maccabees resisting the Seleucid Greeks? Eh, well, I mean, yeah, okay, it still has the smell of ink on it. <coughs> These fan fiction classics command their own place in our consciousness, so much so that in some cases, like Midrash, they are conflated with the original. When folks think about Satan, they're often thinking of Milton's Satan. <laughs> And for example, when folks think about Avraham, they're also thinking of his father's idol shop and how clever Avraham was in demonstrating that idolatry was a spiritually bankrupt practice, even though there's nothing at all in Genesis about Avraham's childhood. For many, Midrash is an integral part of Tanakh, especially of Torah. It adds layers of appreciation for the source material, offering clarification where it needs it, a quick paraphrase to unearth meanings buried in the text, or foreshadowing others that speak to us in the present moment, and in many cases, creative rereadings. Midrash is as much a mode as it is a genre. And as we continue through the Chronicles, we will very much be in this mode, looking for the similarities between the Chronicler's account of the canon, but also the differences that highlight a different imaginative take on well-known stories. So stay tuned. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 232, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 4 through 7.